to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on May 18th, 2019 at the Academy Playhouse in Orleans, Massachusetts. The theme was New Beginnings, Fresh Start. I believe first time storyteller, Michelle Pelletier. Uh, new beginnings come with bruises. It's a little too low for me to show you, but there's a big one right there. Um, because the other day, I was um, getting my house ready for new rugs, because I'm selling my house. And I decided to uh, move my IKEA bed. And then I decided I needed to really take apart my IKEA bed which was really dangerous because I hadn't eaten dinner and I was doing it with my 10-year-old and I decided I needed to flip it over to get to the last part of it, which was actually true. But because I hadn't eaten dinner, I stopped with it on its side and thought this is the way to do the next step. And I unscrewed the top bar without telling my 10-year-old to hold on to it. And he got squished fingers, and I got a big bruise. So when you're in the middle of a new beginning, you sometimes don't think clearly, because you have so much on your mind. Like the day before that, because new beginnings come with brain farts. <laughs> when my bed was still up, and I had invited my friend over to come see my house because she had wanted first ref refusal on my house. And I hadn't cleaned up anything. And there was a little mason jar top with a glob of coconut oil on it. And I hadn't moved it. And there's really only one reason to have coconut oil by your bed. So <laughs> you really just don't think clearly. But new beginnings really, um, they come with boldness, mostly. That's how you get to that new phase. And in three weeks, my son and I are moving to Santa Fe. And um, we're selling the house. The house is going on the market in like two days <laughs> because new beginnings come with boxes. Um, and I know it's the thing that my son and I are supposed to do. We're supposed to. I know as spirit, this is our next step, except that my heart is with my house, and my heart is with my land. And um, when I moved here 13 years ago from Northern California, I was driving down with my all my stuff in my the back of the truck, and we go from exit 10 to 11, so that's like Harwich, and I thought, ugh, Harwich. I'm never gonna buy here. All the trees are the same height. <laughs> I was spoiled because our family homes were in Wellfleet. Well, I bought in Harwich. There was a plot of land that was about three quarters of an acre, and it fit my, my dream of having a child, and we could run around on the property, and it's just, it's, it's sacred to me, that property. And the house was a shitty little house that was pistachio green, and I have run it through two remodels, and I have changed every window. I have changed every floor, every light fixture. I have picked out every single color on every single wall. And I don't know how to leave. 
I have planted pear trees and blueberries and raspberries and I have held sacred services there and retreats and seen my clients in the studio. I don't know how to leave. So as these waves of grief are coming over me, just uncontrollably, just in the middle of nowhere, I will just start sobbing. And I, I thought, I, again, I just don't know how to do it. And I was driving home one night and it was like, it was really late, well, <laughs> For Cape Cod as a single mom, it was nine. <laughs> it was really late. I was tired. And I'm just, I'm sobbing. And I'm right down the street from my house. And I'm, and I'm like, how am I going to do this? And I just, like, it came up from within me. And it was like, okay, land. Like, the spirit of my land, you have to teach me how to leave. And just then, this deer comes flying out in front of my car, and I slam on my brakes, and I'm like, oh, shit. And I had no idea what the hell that meant. One of my friends said, get the hell out. I was like, well, okay. But what I did know was that I was heard. Immediately, I was heard. And the next morning, I saw a coyote right outside of my window, and then a little chipmunk right outside that lives underneath the house, and it came out to say hi. I kept seeing all the animals that live on and around my property as if they were saying, it's okay. And I got this image that all the love that I've put into my land, it's like a little bubble or a big bubble. It'll come with me, the structure stays, but that love bubble will come with me when I move to Santa Fe. And that made it okay. And when I felt the same thing in my house, I don't know how to go. I heard my home has been in a canvas for 11 years. It's been a painting and now I can put that painting down and I can create a new one in Santa Fe. So the only other ingredient you need when you have a new beginning is brashness. So there's a queen Ikea bed with drawers that has a little bit of a hole in it. That's for sale. So, <laughs> or uh, damn it, I'll just give it to you at this point. It's outside in my yard if you want it. I'll tell you the address. I need to get rid of it. Thank you. <laughs> Please put your hands together for Grace McAvee. McAvee, McAvoy, McAvoy. I was 15 and a half, and my, cha my life completely changed. I had to move to what now takes only about three and a half hours by car, but at the time took about five hours, and my life became hell. It was really, really bad. I became a person that I wasn't, and started to have nightmares. And there were three, most of them were these three different nightmares. One of them was these monsters coming after me. I would run away from these monsters. The second one, I would get to the beach and these very large fish would try to attack me. And the third one, 
I was in a tunnel that was very, very dark. Sometimes there was water in the tunnel. Sometimes there was water in snakes in the tunnel, which I'm extremely afraid of snakes. I'm getting better. And sometimes there were rats. And life had continued, and I continued with these nightmares. And about three, uh, three years later, I met my half-sister for the first time. And um, we started to go out once in a while. And one day she said to me, I'm going to America. And I said, wow, how did you do that? And she said, well, uh, somebody needs a nanny, and I'm going to America. And I said, wow, that's great. About two months later, I saw her again. And I said, so how is the paperwork going? At the time, you needed a visa to come here. And she said, oh, I'm not going anymore. And I said, why not? She said, well, my mother doesn't want me to go because she started to hear these stories how young girls go to America and then you get to the airport and they'll take your passport and you end up working in prostitution. And so many people told her that, that she decided, you better stay here. And um, time continued, the nightmares continued. I tried to end my life a few times during that time. And uh, one day, I just couldn't take it anymore. Something happened really bad, and I called her. And I said, do you know if that woman still needs a nanny to go to America? She said, I don't know, but I'll call her. The following day, she called me back, and she said, here's her phone number. Give her a call. So I did, and uh, this very old woman answered the phone, and she said, how old are you, honey? <laughs> and I said, I'm 19. She said, good. You don't need uh, your uh, authorization from your parents. Can you come to Lisbon tomorrow? And I said, sure. So the following morning, I took the train to Lisbon. I met with her. And she said, well, you seem pretty normal. <laughs> Can you come back again tomorrow? And we'll meet with the people that are going to do the paperwork for you. And the paperwork's probably going to take about six months because you're going to get a diplomatic visa. Long story, they were not diplomats. I was not a diplomat. But by law, diplomats can get a nanny. And that's what I was going to be. And uh, that night, I had the nightmare again of the tunnel. But this time, the tunnel had a little pinhole of light for the first time in three years. And I thought, I knew it. I knew it because all along, all these years, for those three years, I kept saying to myself, I know in the movies, you always hear about the light at the end of the tunnel. There must be, and every time I had a nightmare, I would say, I would think to myself, if I kept going walking, there's gotta be a tunnel. There's got, I mean, there's gotta be a light somewhere, but never was. 
But this time was the first time there was actually a tiny, tiny light, very far away, but there was. And then days go by, and days go by, and this little light started to get a little bigger, and the other two nightmares no longer, they were gone. It was just this one. And then people started to say, you know what happens to you when you go to America, right? They'll meet you at the airport, they'll take your passport, and you end up into prostitution. And so many people told me that, that I thought, what if it's true? What if I get there and my life is even a bigger hell than it is here? And I thought, I, I, maybe I shouldn't go. And that night I had a dream again. And the light became much smaller. And the, I woke up and I said, the hell with this shit, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> And every time I had to go and sign another paper and another paper. And at night when I would dream again, the light got bigger and bigger until I get a phone call and they said, you're going to America next week. And that night I had a dream and it was bright. It was sun. I could see trees on the other side of the tunnel. And I said, I'm here, I'm arrived. I have arrived and it is fine. And I've been here for about now 34 years, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Please welcome to the stage our next storyteller, Jill Teitelman. If you, if you have a secret list, or maybe not so secret, of things that you want to do someday, you know. I'm going to do that someday. I'm going to go there. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do that thing. I would like you to encourage you to do it. Um, I was born in New Orleans. Uh, my dad was stationed there in the Navy. And I was taken back up north about three months later. And um, I have never been to New Orleans. And I've been to a lot of places all over the world. But it was someday I will go there. Um, and I keep, I've, my cousin and I were always going to go together, and we've talked about it many times, and we took, we've taken other trips. So this winter, I was listening to OMR, WOMR, our beloved radio station, and somebody mentioned that the lineup for the Jazz Fest was really going to be great this year. It's always great, I'm sure. And I, it, I don't know what it was. It was, it was February, it was cold, I just said, okay, this is it, and I called up my cousin, and it was quite amazing that she actually had that week off. So I got us the tickets, and she got the plane, and I got, she lives in San Francisco. So we made a date to meet um, April 23rd, which it turned out that I didn't realize it at the time, but that was my mother's birthday, and I, when I started thinking about it, I realized it's interesting that we're going on this trip on my mother's birthday. Um, our mothers were very close. They were first cousins, were second cousins. And um, our family is, her family was, my family was just a little bit crazy. Her family was more than that. Uh, and um, her mother especially. And um, 
my cousin has, ha, was with me when my mother actually died. She, my cousin happens to be a hospice nurse, and she happened to be in town from California for a wedding, and that was when my mother decided to die. And we were together with my father, and my cousin was very supportive and wonderful. Um, we've, we have a long history together. Uh, she's, we're very different. And we've had some hard times, some hard trips. We've, we've had, with family, you know, you can get into conflict. So this was a little bit of a risk, but we, we got there. And I had gotten us um, an Airbnb, which was, if anybody's ever been to New Orleans around here, I don't know. But it was across the river from the French Quarter, so we had to take a ferry back and forth. Uh, everyone says, said to me, New Orleans is, you won't believe how much fun you have in New Orleans. It's just phenomenally fun. And I've taken a lot of trips, and I've had some good days on all those trips, but I don't, I can't really say that I've ever, I don't know, had as much fun as we had. It was, you get there, it's kind of like America, America's Europe in a way, because it's Spanish and French history. And you totally feel a different vibe when you're there. Um, people are absolutely, since Katrina especially, they're very, very welcoming to people that come there and bring their money there. And they probably were always very genuinely kind and hospitable and friendly and funny and and really communicative, but they're especially that way now, um, understandably so. And everyone that you speak to has been through, you know, everyone has lost family, homes, um, livelihoods, and everyone that tells you that, because we would ask a lot, will tell you, will, will say, you know, I'm fine now, I'm, it's, all, it's all okay. You know, either the Lord helped me or we got through it, and it's, it's a very spirited place, and um, because my cousin talks to everybody, and I talk to most people, we got into a ton of conversations, and we, we went to a lot of socially um, significant places, aside from the music, which I don't want to tell you how great that was. We had three full days of music. Um, I'm really telling you this story because for me, because I was born there and I had never been there. And I had never experienced um, any time with my cousin that was as free from conflict. Um, and I had never really felt, I think in, in any of my travels in this country, as embraced as I felt there. And every once in a while I would say to somebody, you know, I was actually born here. And I have the music in me. My parents were enormous music fans. They, I think that's where they became so completely addicted to music and they saw everybody and they, my entire life was full of, of amazing jazz and, and to this day I can't live without music, wouldn't want to. Um, and so the music was amazing and the dancing was amazing and everything about it, the children's tent and the children's performances were all great. But for me, it felt like somehow at this age to go back to where I was born and and see that it was probably a really good time for me to finally go there. Um, on my way back to the airport, uh, we had this, our favorite Uber driver actually was Lyft because that's a more socially responsible company than Uber. We all know that. Um, this woman was a, had been a nurse, which so she and my cousin had a lot to talk about. And she was taking me to the airport and I said, I looked on the map and I had my, my birth certificate and I said, you know, I really should go see, I have the dress where 
my parents were living when I was born. And so I said, I should really go see that. And so she said, oh, honey, no problem. I'll take you there, no problem. And we, it wasn't that far away, but it wasn't that close. And we got there, and it looked different than I had ever imagined it. But it was, it was just a last-minute piece of my sense of why I was there. And, and it was just so nice that Mary Lena brought me there in her Cadillac. And she got me to the airport, and she's, I'm going back next year, and she and I are going to celebrate our birthday together there. Please put your hands together for Kristen Knowles. Yes. So in the trajectory of my life, I have had um, a lot of challenges, like most of us have. We all have a story. Um, and one thing that has defined my adult life is uh, my struggle with, um, with PTSD and uh, major depressive disorder since the age of 10 years old. And I don't feel any shame or humiliation standing here saying that to you right now because it has taken me all these years to be okay with that and to realize that there are reasons that I am the way I am, but there's also a real beauty to it. And it's taken that long at the age of 52 for me to really get that. Um, and so um, I was at a really low point that year. Um, a very uh, beloved family in this community lost a son to suicide. And um, today there was a suicide prevention walk. Um, and that family, um, Dr. Kim Mead Walters and her husband Davis, uh, created an organization called Sharing Kindness. And they've ra raised probably, I don't know how much at this point, but you know, tens of thousands of dollars for suicide prevention and um, awareness. Um, so <clears throat> anyway, that takes me to, um, you know, the enormous bravery that they have shown in talking about this subject. Because as I said, there's so much that we all carry and we're really not encouraged to share it, especially men. Um, and we think we have to suffer in silence, and it's probably the most difficult thing in the world to ask for help. Um, I ended up in a place where um, I needed to go away, and I admitted myself to a program. And after I came back from that program, I had a completely renewed perspective on life. And the people that I met in the program, um, I sort of fell in love with. At first, I looked around and said, I'm not any of you people. I'm not. I'm, I'm different. You know, I'm, I'm not an, you know, a, a heroin addict. I'm not whatever, whatever, whatever it could be. And, and by the time I left a week later, I felt like, oh my God, I like deeply love all of these people because we're all so broken in so many different ways. And um, about a month after that, um, my husband said there was a, there was a, um, a retreat, a workshop at the Rowe Conference Center in Western Massachusetts that I really wanted to go to. 
It was called Join Mother Earth's Transition Team, and it was about becoming an Earth activist, and it was held by Starhawk, who is pretty much a legendary eco-feminist activist since the 1960s, and um, a huge proponent of permaculture, uh, which is new and sustainable ways uh, to live more in tune with the earth and be, uh, live more sustainable lives um, for all of us. It's for the greater good. Um, so, so anyway, I got to go to this thing. And um, I had been to a couple pagan rituals before, but Starhawk is a, a high priestess, a Wiccan high priestess. And for me, I'm like, mm, I don't know about all that stuff. You know, I've always kind of, uh, when I was younger, I really didn't, you know, the word magic. I was like, I don't know what that really means. And until you've seen it, like, you don't really know what it means. That weekend, the very first day, we went, okay, it was a verdant weekend. It was Memorial Day. So it was just like it is now, and everything was just so green. It was vibrating. It was so verdant, and it was calm and peaceful in there. And, you know, it was just astonishingly beautiful. Um, at 9 o'clock after breakfast, we went down into this meadow surrounded by forests and apple trees and perennials all behind us. It was just gorgeous, and we cast a circle. And when you cast a circle, you call in the four directions. And I was in the group that called in the direction of south because I'm a fire sign. And so we started with south for some reason. And as we called in the directions, it, we went uh, south, which is fire, and then west for water, and then the spirits of the north, which represent the earth, and then the spirits of the east, which represent air. And as the fourth group went, which closes the circle and begins the ritual, as that fourth group went and called in the spirits of the air in the east, a gust of wind came through the top of those trees. These are like 80-foot pines, and they were swaying. And then that gust of wind came right down into the meadow where we were standing and picked up all of the petals that were left on the apple trees. And they went up in the air and rained down over us like snow. And I fell to my knees, and I wept. And I knew in that moment that I had just seen magic. And I knew that the reason that magic exists is because, as Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. All of us in that group, together, we made that happen with our intention and our goodness and our love and our hope for the greater good. And that experience has given me something to hold on to ever since. I have finally been able to move past that place where I feel that existential futility, where I just think, what's the point? I know there's a point now and it really matters. Thank you. Elizabeth, will Elizabeth please come to the stage? Thank you. At dinner this evening, 
someone put forth the question, what is something you have never done before in your life? I've never been up on stage before telling a story. <laughs> so another friend of mine asks, if not now, when? That's a good question. I just had a very special birthday. Uh, and I realize, you know, when thinking about it, you know, am I going to be here in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? I don't know. Maybe I will be. Maybe I won't. But I don't want to live a life filled with regrets of why didn't I do it? Like, what's the harm? Everybody up here is going to be supportive of me. Um, and that's great. But that's not the question tonight. The question is uh, new beginnings. And about 15 years ago, uh, I turned the right wonderful age of 60. And a friend of mine had a small child. She was going to California, and I'd never been before, and she wanted some help with her child. And she said, if you're willing to come with me and give me a hand with the baby, you know, I'll pay for your ticket, we'll stay with friends, it'll be fun. And I thought, wow, California, here I come. And, and I went, I went on that trip, and that trip was one of the turning points of my life because I met a group of people there that I never would have gotten to know otherwise. The woman that I was staying with was a stranger to me but known to my friend. Uh, we were housed separately because one guest, one host did not have enough room for all of us. So my host had to go to work the next day, but she left me a name of and telephone numbers of some people in the area who were her friends and would be glad to show me around and come and spend the afternoon. They did. I called them up and they said, let's all meet for lunch. Well, at noontime, this beautiful red convertible drives up with this wonderful middle-aged couple. I'm saying they were probably middle 50s or close to my age of 60 at that time. And they had just gotten married. They were newlyweds. And they were so happy and so full of life and so excited. And it just gave me that little bit of a germ of an idea. Wow, if they could do this, if they could find love at their age, maybe I could too. So I had a wonderful time meeting them and, and still I'm in touch with those people today. And I came home and um, I started I wanted those wheels to turn and some action to take, and I didn't really know where to begin. But this friend who had accompanied, or whom I had accompanied to California, said, well, my husband and I will, will help you. And they did. They helped me write an ad for Match.com. <laughs> now, that was a very bold thing for me to do. Uh, it was very exciting, but also a little bit scary. So my friend took my picture, and I wrote down the usual things which I've come to read on that website at that time. I think people may be very different today, but what did I like to do? Oh, I love to visit museums. I love to travel. After all, I just come back from California. Um, I love long walks at the beach and a nice, cozy fireplace. But most of all, I want someone to share these things with. I had been married much earlier in my life and divorced for many, many years. And 
I think part of me was just waiting for Prince Charming to walk up to my door and ring the bell and say, here I am, I'm going to rescue you from your everyday life. Well, that didn't happen, but um, I did happen to meet a wonderful, wonderful man who is today my husband, and on Tuesday we will be celebrating 12 years of marriage. Okay. So my new beginning had a wonderful, I won't say ending, but a continuation. So thank you. Put your hands together for Casey. Casey. Everybody that's told a story tonight has kind of inspired me, and this all just happened today. Um, I, I work at a jewelry store locally, um, and a gentleman came in looking for a gift. Uh, he wanted an airplane charm, and he um, said it was um, because he had learned to fly. And um, let's see if I can remember how this story goes. Uh, he was taken up in the airplane with his flight instructor, and they went to 1,500 feet, and his flight instructor cut the engine, which my dad is a, he used to be a pilot, and they do that. It's part of the practice. And um, he said, okay, what are, what are you going to do? And the gentleman said, I reached for my radio. And the flight instructor told him, the radio's not working, you can't use that. And so I, he said, I reached to adjust my flaps. And the flight instructor said, your flaps don't work. And by the way, your instruments don't work. What are you going to do? And the man looked at him, and the flight instructor said, you're going to fly the plane. You're going to fly the plane, and you're going to find a safe place to land. And the reason the man was in my store is because his daughter was graduating, and not from pilot school, not going into the Air Force, but because that was her mantra. Whenever she hit a hard spot in her life, she remembered, I'm just going to fly the plane. And what was really funny is my mantra is always, I have made it through 100% of the days I've lived in so far. <laughs> and that's a pretty good record. <laughs> and <laughs> so um, I, I use that. I've leaned on that as a crutch in the past. And that has gotten me through very difficult times, divorce, moving, new beginnings often. And um, it just kind of hit me. And, and I was sitting with that at work. And I just really was very emo about that story in front of my computer. And I was remembering a friend. I have an amazing friend. He is artistic to the nth degree. He had a um, one of his art projects went viral on the internet. Um, he is a freedom fighter. He is a white cis dude that fights for women's rights. He's amazing. He's extremely intelligent. He fights Nazis. He goes to walks. Um, he's also bipolar. And he had a rough winter, and he almost didn't make it. And his wife reached out to me at that time, and I did not know what to do. And I said, but I'm there for you whenever I can do whatever I can do. And usually the thing that you can't do is anything at that time. There are, there are things you can do. But I was sitting there today, this morning, thinking, he's in a really good place right now. He might need the airplane story. 
He might need to know, hey, you're having a great day today. Here is a tool that maybe you can use when you're feeling like the darkness is coming in on you. And I sent him a message and I told him the story and I said, please don't take this patronizingly. Please don't take this condescendingly. And we're close enough. I knew he wouldn't. And I said, um, so if you're ever feeling the darkness closing in, if you're ever feeling like things are too heavy, like you're fighting the fight and nobody is helping you, just fly the goddamn plane and find a safe place to land. And that's my story. <laughs> uh, welcome to the stage, please. Jack Neese. <laughs> it was 1964. I'm a 24-year-old kid. I'm getting married for the first time. I was working in a tile store in Hartford, Connecticut. I was the manager. Well, I was everything because we only had one employee, me. <laughs> the owner of the company, um, who had started in Springfield, Massachusetts, had three distribution locations for ceramic tile, Springfield, Hartford, and New Haven. I'm getting married. The manager in New Haven, middle-aged man, suddenly passes away. That, too, was a one-man show. So the owner of the business is driving from Longmeadow to Mass every day to New Haven to open up this store and work there all day and close it. Well, he got tired of that quickly. And he called me in his office. He said, Jack, uh, you're doing a great job in Hartford. You're about to get married. Why don't you move to New Haven and take over this little store? You can become a 50% partner. Well, this little store was a storefront that uh, was in the uh, lower section of a two-family house. Um, and it was an opportunity, a fantastic opportunity. So I did. I moved to New Haven. I took over this little store. And uh, we, at that time, were only open half a day because I would have to make deliveries in the afternoon. I changed that quickly because uh, I started to stay open all day and make deliveries at night. Uh, that worked out pretty well. And in the first year of business, we did $125,000. We made money. I got my salary. And I was driving a company truck. Not bad in 1965. Well, we can fast forward a little bit. I was fortunate that I was able to open a couple of more locations. I was fortunate that uh, the use of ceramic tile blossomed in the United States. And I was able to open one or two more locations. Fast forward to 12 years ago. My son after two years in college and then going to work for someone other than his, his father, had come into the business. And he had started as a manager and uh, had gradually worked his way up, uh, running a store, uh, opening another store, and then coming into the home office, took over our marketing. And uh, as I say, we fast forwarded to 12 years ago. My son took over the business then with uh, seven locations and a multi-million dollar business, and I was able to retire. So that was a new beginning for me, the second new beginning. And it's allowed me to come here and spend a lot more time on Cape Cod, and because I don't play golf, um, I, I travel. And that's been an exciting thing for me. But it's not so much my success, um, it's the success of the people who worked for me and my son working now who made the company successful. And this new beginning uh, for me back in 1964 has just made my life just wonderful, 
wonderful family, the fact that my son is doing so well in the business, and uh, I'm enjoying it, and he is too. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Alice Flood. Three months ago today, my sister Claire ended her life. Um, she struggled with borderline personality disorder for, I'm going to say, 10, 12 years. Um, we both lost our mother at very pivotal points in our childhood. Um, so on the day she passed, you know, it's all kind of a blur with the events that transpired after. You know, you have police man, men coming in, detectives. I, crazily enough, still went to go get my hair cut. <laughs> I was so in shock. Um, but I came back to the house, and she, at the time, was staying in the house kind of next door. We called it the kid house for whatever reason. Um, I went in there, and I was, you know, trying to find any answers, anything I could find, any, any writings. I was smelling her clothing not really crying, just in shock, looking for a note. Um, I was out there for about 10 minutes, had a couple cigarettes, and um, I didn't find anything. So I decided to go back into the big house, the main house. And as soon as I walked in the door, I can't explain this. I mean, it's still so weird to me. I had this vision, my eyes were awake, but I saw this happen and I know it's true. It was this image of my sister holding her heart and kind of looking down at her body in awe, amazement, like wonder, euphoria. She was pleased with it, but she was very confused. And my mom looked down at her and she said, peace, honey, you finally feel peace. And I think that's her new beginning. And mine is knowing that these two women that I've lost are with me every day. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Bye.